I love the song because it's from my favorite verse, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, Christ that liveth in me. That's uh, a, a, a verse that we can rest in, church. And I, I hope that uh, you have experienced that life. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Him in me. So this morning, before we begin, as is our custom here, we will read a verse, a portion of Scripture, and then spend a moment asking the Lord to cleanse us of any sin, to examine us, to prepare us for worship. And that Scripture this morning will be from James chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 7 through 10, and then we'll spend a few moments praying and seeking His face. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves... Therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Isn't it amazing how God ties songs in? Caleb had no idea what I was going to preach on, what I was going to use for a confession verse, and there it is, cleanse your hands, you sinners, just like what we sang. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Lord, we thank You today that You have given us the Spirit of God as believers to equip us for every good work and enable us to live this Christian life, not in our own strength, but in yours, as we are crucified and live through the power of God. So help us today, Lord, to seek your face, to turn from sin and trust you in all things. And Lord, just have your way in this service now. It's in Jesus' name we pray and believe. Amen. This morning, if you will, I invite you to turn to First Peter again as we continue our series there. Last week, I preached a message called A Call to Holy Living, and that was part one. And today, I will finish that little section up with A Call to Holy Living, part two. And so we're going to look at the verses that kind of connect with last week's. We looked at verses 13 through 16 last week. We'll look at verses 17 through 21 today. So one final time, again, as our custom, if you're able, would you please stand one final time as we read God's Word together uh, in reverence and respect. So 1 Peter 1, 17. If, and if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for Your Word, for this opportunity to proclaim it, to hear it, and to respond to it. So help us, Lord, to have ears to hear and eyes to see. And may the Spirit of God work in us as your word is preached and proclaimed. We thank you again for your grace to us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you, you may be seated this morning. So last week, as I said, if you were with us, if you missed last week's message, you can go back and catch it online. But we talked about what holiness is, and we kind of defined it. We defined what God in His holiness looks like, and we looked at the command, be holy to us, because He is holy. And so this week, we're going to look at exactly why we need to be holy. We know what it is, we've identified it. Now, why do we need to be holy? And I want to ask you a question as we begin to think about, and I believe that this is the experience for all of us as Christians. Why can serving God be hard? Is it hard sometimes to serve God? Why is it so? Why don't we always put God first? Why are there many times where we don't put God first? And the other question is, why do we get cold and careless at times in our walk with Him? Well, here is what I'd like to offer as a suggestion to answers for that. And I want to try to back this up with our text today. I believe that it's difficult to serve God. I believe it's difficult sometimes to put Him first. And I believe the reason why we sometimes grow cold and callous in our lives is because holiness requires discipline. Holiness requires discipline. And I believe that that is motivated by reverence or a godly fear. So I want to think about those two subjects today and try to bring them out. And I want to read to you a separate portion of Scripture this morning and kind of take a look at that with the the idea of being disciplined, okay? Disciplining ourselves, if you will. And that is 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. So I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul says there, and then I want to try to apply that to us being disciplined in our walk with Christ and motivated by reverence towards Him. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 Do you not know that in a race... So think about the imagery Paul is using. And he's writing to Corinthians. So we've all heard of the Olympic Games, right? Well, in, in ancient times, perhaps just as big of a game was what was called the Isthmian Games. Corinth was on what was called the Isthmian Peninsula. And so they had these games like the Olympics. And so he uses these analogies of running and fighting. And they would have understood preparing, getting their bodies ready to compete in these athletic events. So he says, Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He says, Every athlete exercises self-control. The King James says that every athlete strives for mastery and is temperate. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or crown. A stephanos is the word in the Greek he's using there. But we run our race to receive an imperishable one. Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not run just haphazardly. Then he switches gears to go to boxing. I do not box as one beating the air. Not just shadow boxing here. But I discipline my body. There's the word discipline. And keep it under control or under subjection. Why? Because... After the danger, he says, is after I preach to others, I myself might be disqualified or literally a castaway. So what is he saying in these verses? 
Well, he uses the imagery, imagery of an athlete preparing to participate in these games. As Christians, as believers, we are running a race. There is a finish line ahead of us. Nobody knows when our time to cross that finish line will be, but we were all going to run a race with the ultimate goal to cross the finish line and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Right? We're running that race. Run, he says, that you may obtain it. He says, every athlete exercises self-control. Or I like what the King James says, even though the language might be a little bit dated for our modern understanding. It says, he strives for mastery. If you've ever participated in, in sports at a high level, you understand the importance of training, of proper diet. The best athletes in the world spend hours and weeks and months and years to play a two-hour game. What you see on the field is the end result of years of hard work. Training, preparing, eating right. All those things. That's what Paul is saying here. Every athlete exercises a certain degree of self-control in their lives. They have to, to be able to participate at such a high level. He says they're doing that, all that effort, and everything that they exert in themselves, they're doing just to win a Stephanos. If you've ever seen images of like Greek sculptures, and they have like an olive leaf or a fig leaf little crown on their head that looks goofy to us, that's what all that effort was for, to get some leaves and some twigs stuck on your head, basically. That's what he's saying. They did all that to get that. How much more ought to we train and discipline ourselves because we are going to receive an imperishable reward, a crown from Christ Himself? He says, don't just run aimlessly. Don't just live your life. Can you imagine if you had trained and trained and trained to run the Boston Marathon and they had it all marked off? And the gun goes off, and you just start to run aimlessly down an alley, and you take a shortcut across. I don't know what the course is, but can you imagine, number one, how ridiculous you would look? Number two, how quickly you'd be disqualified from the race. Paul says, don't just live your life aimlessly. Understand the purpose and the point of your life and who's in control of it and who you're ultimately seeking to please and run your race with a purpose. Run your race with a purpose. He says, I don't box as one beating the air. Again, when you, we, we watch boxing today or maybe UFC and stuff like that. And you know, it's still pretty, pretty brutal. Do you know in, in, in these times, you didn't get nice padded gloves. You got leather straps with metal in them. Yeah, that was the boxing match. And you beat each other. Caleb, you like that? You want to, I don't think I'd want to do that. I don't think I'd want to be in a fight like that. But that's what was going on. He says, I don't just box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. Or literally, I buffet myself. Uh, that can, can be translated, I black my eye. Is literally what that's saying. I, I discipline myself. I, I pummel myself. Now, he's not saying that literally to say we ought to go home and 
you know, literally buffet ourselves in the physical sense, but he's explaining the training. I discipline, I buffet myself, I, I bring myself under control. I'm, I'm temperate in these things. Because, remember my questions? Why can serving God be hard? Why don't we put Him first? Why do we get cold and careless? Because if we don't discipline ourselves, we will run aimlessly all over the place. We will chase all sorts of other things, all sorts of worldly pursuits, all sorts of fleshly desires. And we would be just like the guy in the Boston Marathon that took off down an alley and didn't follow the course set before him. And we do it all the time because we don't discipline ourselves. We don't bring ourselves under subjection. And Paul says the danger of that is I may spend my whole life telling other people about Jesus and preaching the truth and warning them about hell and the judgment to come and get to the end of my own race and be found out to be a castaway. He's not saying you can lose your salvation. He's saying to make sure you have it. And one of the evidence that you have it is that you live a holy life and you can only live a holy life by being, obedience and bring, by being obedient and bringing yourself under the authority of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And that takes discipline. And the way that we have that discipline is that we're, one of the ways is that we're motivated by a reverence and respect for a holy God. That's what I want us to see and tie that into this message, a call to holy living. Just have two points this morning. The first one is this. We should be holy because God will judge our conduct. So Peter gives us kind of two motivating things, and one is a negative and one is a positive. And this is the negative. We should live holy lives because God is going to judge our conduct. Look at verse 17 of our text today. He says, and nothing in the Word of God is irrelevant. Every word is important. Every jot and every tittle has meaning. So when we look at that, that word and could literally say furthermore. So he is taking what we just talked about last week, verses 13 and 16, be holy for I am holy, and he's linking it together with these following verses. Okay, do you see that? So he might be saying, furthermore, based on what we just talked about, what? If, he says, if you call. Now, that's not conditional. In the English language, when we look at that, it looks as if Paul's giving us an option. Well, if you do this, but in the Greek, this is what's called a first-class conditional clause. Don't expect you to know that or anything, but it is important for us to understand. Paul's not saying if as though it's optional. Rather, what he's saying, or we could literally translate that, since, or in view of. So it could be translated, that first part could say, furthermore, in view of, in view of what? You calling on God, or literally, your prayer life. One, One commentator said, just about that word, if, and your prayer life, he said, is your if, iffy. Is your if iffy? How is your prayer life? Is it optional? Do you view this as just an if? Well, maybe if I, if I do this, if I feel like it, if I'm in the mood. Or is it because I do that, in view of what I do? Prayer is so important, guys, and we neglect it so much. But furthermore, 
in view of, now in view of what? Calling on Him as Father. Boy, that's, that's comforting. That part is comforting. We sing or used to sing a song, Good, Good Father. He's a good, good Father. That's who, I, that's who He is. I'm loved by you. And that's certainly true. Our relationship with God is one of children to a father. The Greek word there is Abba. It pictures a small child going to, the, to their father in complete dependence. You know how it is with the little ones with Uriah, for example. They put their hands up sometimes and go like that. They just want to be held. That's the idea, right? He is a father, and we can approach him as such. But, as human beings are prone to do, we sway back and forth from one extreme to the other. And one of the dangers in today's society is viewing, in Christian circles, is just viewing God simply as love. And we talk about this all the time. Forgiving, patient, kind. He's all of those things. And more. And other things. And when we just focus on that understanding of Him, it's easy to presume on grace. I've preached about that subject before. And we're thankful for grace, aren't we? Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Thank God, or we're all in trouble. But the problem with that, if we're not careful, if we're not biblical, is that we can fall into a pattern that says, and our hearts become a little bit hard and callous to where we say, well, I know that this is not right. I know the Word of God condemns this. Maybe I still even feel a little conviction over it. God will forgive me. He's promised to forgive me. Grace. I'm not perfect, God. And you start to justify your sin under the guise of, well, there's always grace. And again, there is always grace. But don't presume on it. If you're presuming on it, that says that something underneath the surface is going wrong in your heart. Right? Thank God for grace, but don't use that as an excuse to sin and just say, well, God will forgive me. It's okay. I get grace. Be cautious about that if that is your attitude towards things. But he says, we can call on Him as Father. And that's a beautiful thought. That our relationship changes with Him to one that we can approach Him as a Father and receive that love and care and compassion. And His love is perfect because, again, for some people, the term Father is not good. You didn't have a good Father. You didn't have a good relationship with your Father. And so to read that doesn't give you a warm, fuzzy feeling. It raises your anxiety to a 12, right? It causes all kinds of bad thoughts. You can't view God in terms of your human relationships, no matter how good they might have been or how bad they might have been. He, as Father, is a perfect, holy, just, righteous Father. So don't, if you've had a bad human relationship with your dad, don't let that affect this text. Take it for what it is and take God for who He is. And understand that. But look at what it says. If you call on Him as Father, yea, who judges. Uh-oh. What? That can't be right. We don't talk about judging in this society. We don't judge anything, right? Matthew 7, 1. Judge not. We're not supposed to judge anybody or anything. Ever. Ever. Shouldn't even say that word. 
That's how a lot of folks think. That's how a lot of Christian people think today. But it's in our text. We call on Him as a Father, yes, who judges. He does judge. Church, He judges lost people. We know that. He judges believers too. He judges believers too. Pastor Michael, when he was going through his uh, Revelation Sunday school study, talked about this a lot. The great white throne judgment, regardless of your end times position, there is going to be a final judgment of unbelievers called the great white throne judgment. And there will be a judgment seat of Christ for believers. Two different purposes, one for salvation, one for works and deeds. But nonetheless, every single human being is going to stand before some type of judgment seat. Every single one of them. And for us, he says that this loving Heavenly Father who has shown us grace and forgives us is still going to judge our lives and still is judging our lives. And this is in the present tense. Meaning, he's not just talking about at the end of your life, at the end of the age, that there's going to be a judgment. Yes, there is, but this is continuous. God is continually, right now in this moment, judging your thoughts, your deeds, and your words. Understand that. Why is that important? Let me give you a verse. Hebrews 12.10. Paul, who I believe is a writer of Hebrews, but it doesn't matter that on that subject, He is talking about earthly parents disciplining their children. And he says that's good. It's a good thing that fathers discipline their sons and correct them. And then he switches to our Heavenly Father, with He being our Father and we are His children, disciplining us. And look at what he says in Hebrews 12.10. For they disciplined us, our earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good. Why? What does it say? That we may share in His holiness. Nobody likes to be disciplined. But it's for our good. It's for a purpose. Do you see? The Father is a judge. And if you get out of line and you're unrepentant, and you're running aimlessly, and you're beating the air and not bringing your body into subjection, God isn't just going to let you have a pass indefinitely. He's going to chastise you as a father disciplines his child for the purpose of making you holy. You see that? Because he cares too much about his children to let you stray off and fall away into an earthly, worldly, fleshly, consistent living. We all backslide. But God won't let His children truly stay in that position. Forever. God the Father, He says in verse 17, He judges. But here's the good thing about the judgment of God. Look what it says. He judges how? Impartially. A prosopoleptos is the Greek word, a big long Greek word. But it's an interesting word. Have you ever watched a movie that back in first century it's t- supposed to be taking place and maybe a king or somebody really important comes along and a person would fall down before them and bow their face 
and the king or whoever would, would lift their face up. You ever seen them do that before? Maybe they would take their staff and put it under their chin and, and raise their chin up, that person that was bowing. That's what that word in the Greek means. But you notice, I told you the word was a, a prosopoleptos. It has an A in front of it. So that means it's the negative. So to receive the face, but this is saying to not receive the face. What does that mean? It means that God's impartial. Certain people might be worthy to have their faces lifted up. The king might say, I I deem you as being worthy. You can look at me. None of us are worthy to have our faces lifted up before a holy God. He's impartial. It doesn't matter how awesome you are, and it doesn't matter how evil you've been. The playing field is level. We talk about all the time the, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Right? There's nothing about us that makes us great enough for God to want us on His team just because we're great. But there's nothing so bad about us that He says, I can't do nothing with that one. They're beyond hope. He's not a respecter of persons. His judgment is impartial. He judges based on His standard alone. And He shows grace upon who He desires to show grace. And mercy upon who He desires to show mercy. And it's all because of Him. And so, He is a judge, but He will always be a just judge, a righteous judge, and an impartial judge. There's no... Look... Regardless of what political affiliation you fall in this morning, I think we would all say amen that our government's corrupt on both sides of the aisle. You don't ever have to worry about that with God. He's not going to be bribed. He's not going to be coerced. His judgment is going to be impartial. And that's a good thing. And look what else he says. Call on the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. We already talked about that. He's judging. He's watching what we do. But then look what it says. Conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct yourselves with fear. Now again, what's interesting, and we don't see this in the Greek, or in the English, but we see it in the Greek, is the word order is reversed. So in English, it says, conduct first yourselves with fear. In the Greek, it's the opposite. It says, in fear, conduct yourself. Why does that matter? Because word order in the Greek shows emphasis. So whatever word comes first is the word that's emphasized. In this case, it's fear. Or we might say, because of fear, reverence and awe towards God, the result should be a change in conduct. You see that? You see what he's saying there? And so, behave accordingly based on your understanding and relationship toward God. Let me give you a verse from 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. And listen to what Paul writes there. Kind of break it down into sections. He says, since we have these promises, what promises? Well, if we went back to the previous chapter, we would see that Paul was quoting from the Old Testament. He quotes Leviticus and he quotes Isaiah. And the two promises that he gives... Are, are these. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then the other promise He gives is, I will be a father and you will be my sons. 
Okay? So Paul says, since we have these promises, He's going to be our God, we're His people, He's our Father, we're our children. Since we have these promises, beloved, here's the second part. Let us, who? Us, whose responsibility is it? Can we do it in our own strength? Who helps us? Who lives within us? Holy Spirit. Remember I told you, salvation is all of God. It's monergistic. There's nothing we can do or offer God for our salvation. He has to intervene in our lives. He has to cause us to be born again when we repent and believe. We cannot do anything to be saved. When we're saved, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. We have the Word of God. And through the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, we have everything we need to live a godly life. But... It's not completely up to just sitting back and say, okay, God, pour it on me, make me holy, and I'll do nothing. We have to be obedient, right? We have to be willing to obey. We have to be willing to follow. We have to be willing to serve because we can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. If we couldn't disobey, then the verse I read to you from Hebrews 12 makes no sense. Why would he need to discipline children if we were never rebellious and went out of the way? If he just drug us along kicking and screaming against our will, there would be no rebellion. He'd just grab us by the nape of our neck, and sometimes he does that. But nonetheless, we still make choices and get out of his will. And so Paul says, since we have these promises that we are his people, and he is our God, and he is our Father, and we are his children, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Live a holy life is what he's saying. But again, that won't just happen. Remember the D.A. Carson quote from last week? You don't drift into holiness. You have to discipline yourself. You have to master yourself. Again, not in your own strength, in obedience to the Word of God, in submission to the Spirit of God, but you can live a holy life. We often say, well, I'm just a work in progress. I'm, just, I'm only human. But I think we use that sometimes as a crutch. Yes, we're, we're only human. Yes, we're a work in progress. Yes, we're going to blow it. That is true. But we shouldn't just settle in and say, well, it's as good as I'm going to get. <laughs> I'm never going to make any more progress. God found me. I was a two. He's got me up to about a six. I may get to a six and a half, and I'm good with that. Right? We want to be like Christ. Christ is a 10. I'm shooting for a 10 every day. I might not make it. I'll never make it in my own strength, but that is the goal, and I'm going to press on every day to try to be a 10 through the power of Christ. And when we blow it, we repent, we get up, and we start shooting for the 10 again. Right? Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion or perfection. Why? In the fear of God. In the fear of God. Just what we were talking about in our text from Peter. And in the Greek, in fear is first, conduct yourselves. See that? Discipline yourself. Know what's sinful. Know how you ought to walk. Don't run aimlessly. Discipline yourself. Live a holy life because God is a judge. He's watching the way that you live. So conduct yourself with reverential fear and awe towards God. You see how that all comes together now? Did I tie all that together to be understanding? If you've served in the military, I have not. 
But I know many of you haven't. I thank, I thank you for that. I thank you for your sacrifice. But there is a code of conduct, is there not? There is a code of conduct that you live by. And we have a code of conduct, a way that we are to conduct ourselves as believers. In Proverbs 14, 16, to kind of sum that code of conduct up, it might go like this. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil. So if you want to be wise, be cautious and avoid things that are evil. But a fool is reckless and careless. Nobody wants to be a fool. Uh, You know, we all act foolish sometimes. But nobody wants to be a fool. But the fool acts reckless and careless. One old commentator that I read from time to time was named William Barclay. Don't agree with all this stuff, but he's got some pretty good things. He said, reverence, this godly fear that we've been talking about, is the attitude of mind of the man who is always aware that he is in the presence of God. God is omnipresent. You are never out of the view of God. Here's another quote, an anonymous quote. It says, The attitude advocated is not the craven, cringing dread of a slave before an offended master. So when we're talking about the fear, it's not this cringing dread of a slave. There's a different word for that. Before an offended master. But the reverential awe of a son toward a beloved and esteemed father. The awe that shrinks from whatever would grieve or displease him. That's what he's talking about. Now look at the end of verse 17. This is the main verse I want to look at and we'll kind of wrap up the others real quick. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. I think the King James says to pass your time as sojourners. Do I have that right? Somebody using the King James? Pass your time as sojourner or the time of your sojourning. And another translation says, pass your time as foreigners. I thought this was interesting. You know, again, every single word in in the Bible has meaning. Okay? He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, the ESV says. So we understand that as Christians, as believers in this world, this is not our home. Right? The word foreigners or exile or sojourners is paroikia. And what that means literally is to dwell near someone or to have a home alongside of someone. So it's basically saying that you're a foreigner and you may put up your tent next to folks that live here, but it's temporary. It's, it's talking about someone who may stay in a land, like you may take a vacation to another country, but you're not a citizen of that country. And that's the word that's being used there. But let me show you something. There's a different word. Uh, the word is katoikeo. I know I'm throwing a lot of Greek words at you today. Don't expect you to remember any of these. That's okay. But the reason why I used it, brought that up, I thought this was interesting. In the book of Revelation, that word is used quite a bit. Let me give you two verses. Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my word, he's, he's speaking to the church there, uh, Desla, uh, uh, Thyatara. Uh, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on 
the earth. Do you see that? The dwell on the earth. Katakoieo. Revelation 13, 8. He says, to all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Worship who? The beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. To dwell on the face of the earth means to settle in and inhabit. The word used in Peter is someone dwelling temporarily. It's someone who, this is not their home. So when we look at the verses in Revelation, we see a judgment coming on those who dwell on the earth, those who are unbelievers, who have made this their home, who have adopted the ways of this life, who live in accordance with the world. We don't live that way. And Peter uses that term distinctly for a purpose. But my question is this. Do we live like we are exiles on this earth or like we are earth dwellers who are camped up and this is home and we don't want to leave it and we don't want to forsake the things of it? You've got to ask yourself that question because when we talk about holiness... It's important to understand that God is watching, yes, but this is not our home, number two. And we can't have such a tight grip on everything here that we forget about eternity and laying up treasures in heaven. There was a story, an old preacher, Martin DeHaan, I don't know how many of you heard of him, uh, but he told a story about a judge. And this judge would hear cases of drunk drivers. And he gave those that were found guilty of drunk driving, he gave them two options. He would let them go without any kind of penalty, but they had to put a bumper sticker on their car that said this, this car is owned by a convicted drunk driver. And he said almost everyone, 99%, said that they didn't want the bumper sticker. The second option was to enroll in an alcohol treatment program for months. They'd rather do that than to risk someone seeing them driving around with a bumper sticker that said that they had been a drunk driver. And he goes on to say, say this, the majority of people cared about what others thought of them and wanted to maintain a good image. The fear of embarrassment applies to other kinds of acceptable, unacceptable behavior as well. For example, not many of us would be willing to walk around with a sign on our backs that read, Danger, I'm a Christian who doesn't spend time in prayer or Bible study. Nor would we want to wear a sign that says, Warning, I'm a child of God who gossips too much. Or, Be careful, I'm controlled by lust rather than love. He said, If God required us to display such a sign, would our desire for the respect of others keep us from revealing our true spiritual condition? The way we answer that question says a lot about our sense of shame before the Lord, who always judges us accurately. Is it possible that we fear His opinion less then we fear the opinion of others. That's really something to think about. So real quick, my second point, we should live holy. This is the positive side of it. We should live holy because of the cost that God paid. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed. Again, I think it's amazing. We sing these songs, redeemed, which is what that word ransomed means, to be redeemed. But he says knowing, because we're prone to forget, we need to know this, we were redeemed. We were slaves, folks. Don't forget that before you met Christ, you were a slave to your sin. You're still a slave, but now you're a slave to righteousness. 
but you are a slave to sin. And this would have really struck home to folks in this time because in the Roman Empire, about 60 million people were slaves. And a lot of those became Christians. They became believers. And so this imagery would have meant a lot to them. Being purchased, ransomed, redeemed means to buy back. You are in the slave market. The cost for a really good, healthy, strong slave was 30 pieces of silver. Does that sound familiar? You know somebody else that was sold for 30 pieces of silver? Who's that? He got, Judas went out and got the cost of a common slave to betray his master. 30 pieces of silver. To buy someone back from the slave market is what that, redeem, that word redemption means. We were bought, church, with a price. It wasn't gold. Listen to what Peter says. Knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. God paid something much more infinitely valuable than some change in your pocket or some money in your bank account. Do you know how important money is really in the big grand scheme? It's important to us on this earth. But do you know how important it is to God and His economy? They pave the roads with gold up there. That's how important it is you walk on it. It's not that important, right? Titus 3.3 3 says this, For we ourselves, believers, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, here it is, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Wow, what a life. And yet we will chase the world over and over to live that unsatisfied, unpleasurable, futile way of life. Listen to that. Does that not describe ultimately where most people today are that live in the, excuse me, live in the world? We ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures. And listen to the result of that. Passing our days in malice and envy. This is just hated by others and hating one another. Isn't that the way that the world is? I hate to say it, but sometimes that's the way churches are. They don't like anybody else, and they don't like each other, and they don't like, they don't like themselves sometimes. That shouldn't be that way. That's how we used to live, right? We weren't redeemed with gold and silver, he says. How were we redeemed? With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What a cost that was paid for you. We talked about it in Sunday school, that a lot of people struggle to think they're worth anything. To think that their life is purposeless, that they don't have any value, that they maybe have been told they were an accident, that nobody would ever love them, that nobody would ever care for them. The cross says otherwise. Creation says otherwise. You were made in the image of God, number one, and God cared enough about you that He sent His Son to die a brutal, bloody death so that you could be redeemed, you could be purchased out of this futile, pointless, meaningless, sinful, worldly life and be given a life so much greater than anything you'll ever find chasing stuff out there. You'll never find the perfect man, the perfect marriage, the perfect home, the perfect job to fulfill you and satisfy you because that fulfillment only comes from knowing Jesus and you try to fill it up with anything else, it will always leave you wanting more. You'll never be completely satisfied. That doesn't mean you can't have a decent life without Christ. 
That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy anything or have an okay marriage or have a nice home and have a good job. But ultimately, those things won't satisfy because you weren't created for those things. You were created to have communion with God. And you can't have that without Jesus. He's not impressed by your car or your house or your friendships or your job title. He wants you to submit to Him. And that's regardless of who you are this morning. I'm going to ask the praise team to come. I want to give you two verses to think about. 2 Peter 3, 9 says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you're lost today, God desires you to reach repentance, to fall on your face before Him and confess your sins and believe. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And look at how he closes. He raised, verse 21, He raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope is in God. When we understand the price that God paid for us, the life that He lived for us, and the resurrection power that He can give us as believers, it ought to change the way that we live. There was a story told about a seminary student and he said that when he was a kid he took up an interest in golf. And his parents got him some clubs, but they wouldn't let him have the real golf ball to knock around. And so they got him some of those soft golf balls, and he would practice with those. And one day he decided it would be really cool to hear the crack of that ball and hit the real thing. So he got him a real golf ball. And he teed it up, and he, he, he swung and nailed it and sliced it big time. And it crashed through the window, followed by a loud scream. And he ran inside and he saw his mom with her face all bloodied. That ball had went through the window and, and shattered it and hit his mom. And he was scared to death as he saw that blood all over her face. And he said, Mom, I, I could have killed you. And she said, I'm okay. But he related in the story, he said, because of seeing my mom and, and that blood and what happened, there were certain things I could never do again. He said, I could never walk through that yard in the back with my golf clubs. I could never hit that golf ball in the backyard again. It changed him when he saw the blood and the damage that he had caused. Friends, when you see Christ on the cross and the blood that he shed for you, it ought to change the way that you live. It ought to change us all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for that death that you died and the resurrection that guarantees eternal life to all that will believe. So now in this time of invitation, Lord, we pray that you would draw men to salvation, that you would draw us to repentance, to live a holy life. Lord, to lay aside our sins to stop covering up those things that we're doing, pretending that if we're the prodigal and we've strayed and backslidden, that we would come home today, Lord. That you do love us and you will forgive us and show us grace if we truly repent and are genuine in that. So, Lord, have your way now in this invitation. Stir hearts, change minds forever. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and as we